0: Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Belglade Alliance Church. Belglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Belglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.belgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. You know, this is not a fun way to start a sermon, but I've been reminded over and over recently That it's not always easy to be a Christian. It's not always easy to live as God has called us to live. And we've been rather spoiled in our country for a very, very long time. You know, it used to be that when you look at the idea of persecution, the idea of hardships just for your faith in Jesus... We always looked outside of our country for things like that. We looked at uh, the underground church in China that was not allowed to meet publicly, and so had to meet secretly. We've 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 seen the beheadings of Christians in in certain regions that were they were killed for their faith in Jesus. We have seen missionaries and and Christian institutions attacked uh, by radical. Muslim extremists in West Africa, uh, even to the point where we've had our own missionaries recalled at certain points for their own safety. We've seen these things and we've largely thought of them being outside of our country, outside of our lived experience. And if we're being honest, it's still really outside of our lived experience. But Christians are enduring hardships. And things are starting to turn in our country as well. I'm not trying to say that to scare you. I'm not some end times prophet here. I'm not saying anything like that. But what I'm trying to paint a picture of is there is hardships for Christians that Jesus himself predicted 2,000 years ago when he said they hated me. They're going to hate you also. Right. We are people called to be countercultural, to bring a message that stands against the very fabric of a rebellious kingdom of this earth. And of course, there's going to be opposition, both human and spiritual, to that. I wanna share with you this letter from, just as an example, this is from Crown College, which is a Christian Missionary Alliance College. Uh, We've had a few. One is closing, and this one is enduring hardships now. Here's a letter that went out on May 24th. Friends of Crown College, throughout the last several months, the Minnesota Department of Education and our state's respective legislative branches of government have sponsored legislation that would eliminate Crown College's ability to offer our on-campus post-secondary enrollment options program due to our Christian faith and its application to our admission standards. Today, Governor Tim Waltz signed that legislation into law. It is scheduled to take effect on July 1st. And it did take effect on July 1st. And they are gathering together to try to fight this legally uh, and well, um, but these are some of the changes happening in our country that are making it more and more difficult for Christians to live out the mission that God has called us to in the context in which we're in. We all know that in the media, it's common to hear Christians portrayed now as oppressors, while in actuality, we're quickly becoming the oppressed in many ways, both in culture and in our society. Um, And these tides are turning really quick. In very real ways, Christians in America face the temptation, and more and more will they face the temptation to be silently Christian, privately Christian, Or to accommodate, to compromise, or to accept cultural ideas that are in conflict with biblical teaching. Or to walk away from their faith as they become convinced, in one way or another, that it's either outdated, it's irrelevant, it's wrong, or it's just not worth the stress of a growing marginalization that's taking place among four Christians. And even if these temptations haven't faced you personally, perhaps... They've likely faced the younger uh, generation as they're in schools and and, and in other atmospheres or environments in which they're feeling the pressure of these things. Uh, It's facing those who are maybe not as far along in their walk with Christ. Perhaps you haven't experienced these temptations, but others who are not as far along in their faith may be feeling these temptations. It's certainly facing Christians in academic settings, Christians in more urban settings, or those who are more engaged in the cultural influences of our day. These pressures, these voices are resounding loudly in their lives. So here's the question. Is that a new phenomenon? Is that something that, wow, this has never taken place in the history of the church. It's a new factor that we're trying to contend with as the body of Christ. No, of course not. In fact, the letter to the Hebrews addresses Christians who endure hardships and temptations to abandon their faith. And it provides hope and instruction. And it's still relevant for us today. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to be flipping around a bit today. But our our key passage for this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. So if you have your Bibles with you, please feel free to turn with me. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. For those who may not have your Bibles with you, uh, it will be up on the screen as well. Here's what it says in Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Therefore, So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, of course, there are various important themes that run through the letter to the Hebrews. Among them are these uh, warnings, multiple warnings against falling away, against walking away. Also, the letter reminds of the promises that God has in store for his faithful people. In fact, just before these verses that we read, he is, the writer is reminding these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish Christians from Israel's past about what God has in store for them if they would just remain faithful, and also reminding that those who walked away, those who did not remain faithful, did not receive the promises that God had in store for his people. And ultimately, this letter uh, does both of these things by clearly portraying the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So I want to take a look at these three verses. I want to break down some important attributes as they apply, not just to the historical hardships and the temptations to fall away that existed in church history, but that exist even today uh, as it informs us of how we are to live committed to Christ in the face of any temptations and hardships we may face. So verse 14 again says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. The author is exhorting believers to hold firmly to the faith. Do not walk away from the faith. And he's telling them why they should hold firmly to the faith. You know, we, I think a lot of times, you know, we tell people to do things and we're not always good to share why People should do the things that we're telling them to do. That's one of the things I learned early on in parenting. I got a lot farther in my kids' obedience to the things I asked them to do. If I explained why, Uh, I'm asking them to do that. And and, and this is what he's doing here. He's exhorting them to hold firm. And he's and he's, he's giving them examples from Israel's history. But here he's saying the number one reason you should hold firm is because of who your advocate is. Who your high priest is. And so he's talking to this group of people who are feeling the pressure on all sides. And the danger is very real that they would walk away or fall away, if you will, from the faith. So let's, I want to talk about this idea of walking away from the faith. And it's not something that, you know, we don't like to talk about that aspect of it. And, and, and you know, there are, we, we like to proclaim once saved, always saved. Or we think of, uh, of when somebody comes up at an altar call where they say that magical prayer, the deal is done. And we don't have to worry anymore. And it doesn't really matter how we live, what we do, how faithful we are, what choices we make, what we believe. But is that really the teaching of Scripture? Why are there so many warnings in Scripture If we don't have to concern ourselves with these things, if there's not something required of us in faithfulness to the gospel and to the Lord. And so I would just invite you to explore this with me this morning. And I want to share with you one of the most famous parables of Jesus, uh, the parable of the sower. And I'm sure it's one that many of you, if not all of you, are familiar with. If you remember the parable, uh, Jesus is talking about a farmer who's sowing his seed. And he's apparently, you know, I don't know what's up with this farmer. He's just kind of throwing it everywhere because it gets on all different types of soil and all different types of conditions. And we see that some lands on the path. We see some lands on rocky soil. We see that some grows among thorns and some of it lands on good soil. But here's the thing that we tend to do, and maybe it's just me, I don't know, I I think that as we think about the parable of the sower, we kind of reduce it down in our minds into two different categories, good soil and bad soil. When we think of it as the seed of the gospel, the seed of the word of God is, is planted, and either people respond positively to it or don't respond positively to it, but that's really not what Jesus says as he gives this parable. And so I want to read to you the explanation that Jesus gives of this parable to his followers. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Matthew 13, starting at verse 18. And if, again, it will be up on the screen. And if you like to access your Bible through your phone or iPad, I'm cool with that as well. So if you see my wife on her phone, she's not checking Facebook. <laughs> at least I hope not. Uh, But she's on her Bible app, and you're okay to do that as well. Uh, But Matthew 13, starting in verse 18, here's what it says. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. There's not just good soil and bad soil. There's four different outcomes that Jesus talks about. And interestingly enough, two or three of them look identical from the outside. We, when we think about what does it look like for those who are in the category of the rocky soil they might have heard you proclaim the gospel they received it with great joy they would have come forward and had prayer they might have come to your bible study they joined in worship maybe they sing on the praise team they come and help out with Awana they are excited things are good they love the Lord it's all great but then things change Persecution or fear of persecution sets in. Trouble or fear of trouble comes and the text says they fall away. They are not listed among those that's good soil. But from the outside, it looks like they have persisted with the Lord and then at some point did not any longer. Then there's those that were choked out by the thorns. And so we don't know at what point this is, maybe soon, maybe later on, but at some point, the seeds are choked out by the thorns. And what is the cause? What are the thorns? Worries and temptation to pursue worldly pleasures, wealth, things like this, things that would call them away from the life that God has called them to, from commitment, dedication to the Lord, And instead, they've committed and dedicated themselves to the worldly pleasures that they persisted in before coming to faith in Jesus. And so when we think about this letter to the Hebrews, when we think about this group of of Jewish believers who were facing persecution on various fronts, persecution from the local synagogue leaders, persecution from their fellow believers some of them put out of their families not allowed to be a part of the Jewish community uh, in some cities not being able to to barter or trade uh, being hated by their neighbors this persecution took on various forms and was much more intense than anything you or I have ever experienced and it's quite easy for them to be like those on rocky soil who have, who have received the word with great joy, persisted for a little while, and then the troubles are getting too much. And the letter to the Hebrews is addressing this very issue. Hold firm to the faith we confess. And he gives the reason. Why? Why should they do that? Jesus. What about him? What about Jesus? Here's Look at verse 14 again. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to to the faith that we profess. Jesus, the Son of God, is our high priest, and he is the reason given by the author of Hebrews to persevere. As high priest, Jesus goes to the Father on our behalf. He is our advocate before the throne of God for his followers. But what kind of advocate is he? The text clues us in here. This is the heart of these three verses we find in verse 15, which we'll get to in just a minute. What kind of advocate is Jesus? I think all of us have probably experienced bad advocates at some point. I've had several of them. I had to decide which, which, which example to give you. Uh, I remember just a couple years ago, my father passed away and he left a, a mess of an estate that had to be cleaned up legally. And of course, as the oldest son, I had to enter into that court process uh, and I had to hire an attorney. As I'm talking with the attorney, he gives, you know, it's kind of that half listening to you. You know, you talk more to his paralegals and other people than you do to him. And all of a sudden, the longest time you're with him, he's in the judge's chambers with the judge and the other parties involved. And as he's explaining things to the judge, you're thinking, did he really understand what I said? He clearly doesn't know me or my father. He doesn't understand the depth of this situation. I think I could have advocated for myself better than this attorney it's so cold and so disconnected praise the lord everything went well that day but it was i could tell i had an advocate who didn't understand me he didn't understand the situation i was going through and he really probably didn't care at all he was there because that was his job and he did what he had to do and that was enough for him how much better would it be if those people who are advocates for us, actually knew us, actually understood us, and if they actually had empathy toward us. How much better of an advocate would that be? Jesus is that kind of advocate. We see this in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You know, there's some amazing things about Jesus. I hope you don't miss this in understanding him. I hope you don't miss this as you read the scriptures. Jesus was God, is God incarnate. Well, what does that mean? That's a word we don't often use. He was fully God and fully man. He entered into humanity. He took on a human nature, human flesh. He experienced fully what it is to be human. Here's just some examples. They blow my mind. I feel almost like I'm doing something wrong by thinking about them, but I'm not, don't worry. Do you know that Jesus was tired? He got hungry. He had to learn. That's a weird one to think about. He had to learn. He he went without at times. He got hurt. And there's probably a hundred of the things, a thousand of the things that we could mention that Jesus actually really experienced as a human being in the same way you and I have experienced this. In fact, Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8 paint a picture of this process by which Jesus has entered into our space, entered into our world, in order to accomplish what he had to accomplish for us. In a, in a passage referring to the humility of Christ and instructing believers on how they ought to treat each other, here's what Paul writes about Jesus. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Please don't think that when Paul says uh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, and that was in the only way, and that was the only way Jesus humbled himself. Taking on human nature was Jesus humbling himself. Walking in our shoes was Jesus humbling himself, and yes, dying on the cross. Or dying was humbling himself, and the way he died was humbling himself even more. Jesus had the full gamut of human experience. He was tempted in the wilderness with uh, human power and physical comfort by Satan. He was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane to avoid his torturous death. Right? He could have up and ran. In fact, his disciples probably would have promoted that idea. Or or like, Peter, grab the sword and let's fight our way out of this. He was praying, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, please. But importantly, not my will, but yours be done. As we consider the various types of hardships and persecutions that befell the Christians, that the author of Hebrews is writing to, certainly, certainly, Jesus uh, endured hardships and persecutions far greater than any that they were facing. And in all of these things, he was found faithful. In all of these things, he did not give in to temptation. In all of these things, he did not sin. It says in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Why is that important? The fact that Jesus did not sin is so important, and it does not detract from his empathy. It does not detract from his ability to empathize with human beings who are, who are feeling the hardship and the pressure and are tempted to walk away, who are tempted to sin. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But the fact that Jesus did not sin proved him to be who we profess him to be. It proved him to be the Son of God. It enabled him to die on the cross in our place, to be our atoning sacrifice. It's what allowed him to serve as our high priest before the throne of God. But the fact that he has endured temptation of all kinds just as we have means he's a high priest, an advocate, who understands what we endure, who understands what we struggle with, who has experienced the pain, who has experienced the hardship, who has experienced the trials and the lures that face us in this world. It doesn't mean that Jesus is light on sin. Let me say that again. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about sin. It doesn't mean he's light on sin. But it does mean that he is able to better love his people who do sin and are tempted by sin. In fact, there's a 17th century Puritan theologian named Thomas Goodwin, and he expressed this relationship between Jesus, us, and our sin well in his book, The Heart of Christ. Here's what he wrote. He says, There is comfort concerning such infirmities, in that your very sins move him, him being Jesus, to pity more than anger. For he suffers with us under our infirmities, and by infirmities are met sins as well as other miseries. Christ takes part with you and is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yes, his pity is increased the more toward you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease or as one who is a member of his body that has leprosy. He hates not the member for it is his flesh, but the disease and that provokes him to pity the part affected all the more. What is Goodwin saying here? You know, our experience when we sin, or at least I know this is true for me, when I fail, I'm worried, I'm concerned, I'm shamed, I stand before God in prayer, and I I don't even know how he can look at me, or how he could forgive me again, or why he would even love me when I am somebody who keeps messing up in so many different ways. And yet... Here, Goodwin is expressing what scriptures make clear in numerous places, that God doesn't hate us because of our sin. If we belong to him, we're forgiven of our sins, but Jesus hates the sin in us. And as he has compassion toward us, mercy toward us, love toward us, a desire to cleanse us from this, it's like a child who you love but who suffers a disease. And yes, Jesus hates that disease. He hates the sin in us, but he loves us all the more and desires to purify us from the sin that we struggle with, to remove the temptations that we face. This is his heart for his people. Hebrews 4 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. We have a compassionate, empathetic advocate before the Father. He knows us, and he knows the disease of sin that we war against while we are living in this fallen world. And because of that, we have provision. Because of that, we have provision for the difficulties, the hardships, and the temptations that we face. We are not alone in our struggles. If only we avail ourselves of God's provision in Christ. But that's the question, right? Do we avail ourselves of God's provision in Christ? We see this in verse 16. Let us then, because of who Jesus is, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us In our time of need, we are called to hold firmly to the faith because Jesus, the Son of God, is our high priest. He's one who understands and empathizes with us. He's been tempted in every way, just as we are, but he was without sin. Therefore, he can be our high priest. And because of this, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy And find grace to help us in times of hardship, to help us in times of persecution, to help us in times of temptation, to help us in our time of need. We have a choice. We always have a choice. We have a choice either to avail ourselves of God's provision or not. When hardships come, God is available for our comfort. He's available for our strength. He's available to aid us in our perseverance, to bring good from bad, to give us a heavenly perspective on the things that we face now, to use our witness in the midst of hardship for his glory and for the, for the ability for others to see God at work and in so many other ways. When moral temptations come, God provides strength. He provides truth. He provides the leading of the Holy Spirit and the capacity to be able to choose God's way over our way. He provides sanctification in our lives. He provides forgiveness when we fail. And everything else that we need, we have. Because Jesus, the Son of God, is our high priest, advocating for us before the Father. The question is, do we lean into God in such moments? Or do we pull away from God in such moments? John 3, 19 through 21, Jesus talks about this very decision. We know we've sinned, we know we fail, we know we're prone to sin. What do we do? Do we hide in it? Do we revel in it? Do we slink into the corners? It just persists in it? Or do we come into the light that God has that he might purify us from it? Here's what he says in John 3, 19 through 21. Jesus is talking. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So that they may see, so that it may be seen plainly, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. God already knows our sins. God knows our proclivities. God knows our temptations. In fact, before you were born, before anything in creation had been created, God knew every last sin you'd fall for, every temptation you'd ever face. So the funny thing is, our, our, our tendency, like Adam and Eve in the garden, to hide from God, as if that's even possible, is funny. And it's sad because God already knows. How much better to come into the light that he might expose it for the purpose not of condemning us, but purifying us and restoring us versus persisting in the darkness. First John 1, 8, 9 says this. John is writing to Christians, and this is what he says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I think sometimes we live in such a way that it, it kind of makes us, what, we wonder if we think this, if I sin, he is faithful and just and will condemn us. If we sin, if we confess, he will smite us. I haven't seen that anywhere in the Bible and I read through it at least once a year. So, but what does it say? If we would just confess our sins to him, confess sins that he already knows about, by the way, he's faithful and just, and he will forgive us, but he doesn't stop there. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. Those things that we trip over, those things we fall prey to, those things that beat us down, those areas where we fail, can be turned into victories, testimonies, of God's faithfulness in helping us past our temptations and our sins. And lastly, again, our final verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 4.16. In light of all of these things, in light of who Jesus is, in light of the fact that he is the empathetic, kind, loving, understanding, advocate for us before the Father, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, God doesn't promise to remove all hardship. He doesn't promise to remove persecution. In fact, he kind of promised the exact opposite, that because we belong to him, and he is hated by the kingdom of this world and its ruler, there's going to be hardship. But that doesn't mean that we're left defenseless. It means our advocate before the Father has available for us his provision that we might live well, live faithfully, and look forward to our inheritance and serve him in serving others, bringing them into the gospel bringing them into relationship with our Lord. We have so much in our blessed relationship with our Father because of Jesus Christ, so much to live for, administering one to another, so much to do in service to Jesus as we live out this great commission in our midst. Let us not fall short because of persecution and hardships, but let us avail ourselves of the gifts of grace and mercy provided by Jesus, that he will give us everything we need to live well for him and to put him on display before others, serving him in this community and to the ends of the earth. Whether we never face persecution or hardship like others around the world do, or the ta- or the, the page turns and things change for us here, may we we be found faithful knowing that God has done everything necessary to provide us exactly what we need to serve him well in this world.